At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. We stay the course. We are dead. We are all dead. We're supposed to make the world a better place. What happened? I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. I know Kung Fu. You either die a hero, or you live long enough to see yourself become a villain. I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. This whole thing is insane. This whole thing is insane. 300 years ago, you'd have been burned at the stake. What do all men with power want? More power. This is now the United States of Zombieland. This whole thing is insane. Man is even capable of nothing but destruction. Everybody is stuck with the things that they're not proud of. More power. Welcome to the desert of the real. More power. There can be only one. Are you a God-fearing man, Senator? You're such a strange phrase. I've always thought of God as a teacher, as a bringer of light, wisdom, and understanding. You see, I think what you really are afraid of is me. Happy heresies and welcome to the desert of the real. Heresy shouldn't be this much fun, but it is. It just is. Especially with the audio version of AB Live. This one, episode 68. Raw, uncensored, and unfiltered. Just like the truth you've been looking for across all your existences. Supercharged by stellar audience participation. And this show was overdue. And like any time my amazing friend Amanda comes to the virtual Alexandria... It was full of tech archons and weird, unexplained attacks. But that just means we're getting closer. Yes, Amanda Radcliffe joined us, but we were also honored by the company of Andrew Phillips Smith. The two granted a deep understanding of the Cathars. Furthermore, we countered the recent scholarship claiming that the Cathars never existed that they were merely heretical Catholics, later sensationalized by esoteric romanticism. We didn't have time to fully delve into Mary Magdalene, as we had planned, so expect a follow-up. This show is dedicated to the memory of Bishop Rosamonde Miller. We honored an individual who, arguably more than anyone in modern times, honored the legacy of the Cathars and Mary Magdalene. Thus, and as a bonus for all subscribers, I'll include my own interview with Rosamonde, and do expect a lot of Mary M. Thank you as always to those of you who support this Red Pill Cafeteria. 
You are amazing, and your support, company, and feedback keep the Gnostic promise alive. We need Gnosis more than ever in this age of Hermes, Philip K. Dick world, and Gnostic times. You won't find this high-quality Gnostic and Hermetic wisdom, or many of the guests and their unique insights, anywhere else in cyberspace or even meat space. And let me remind you about Aeon Byte's first ever conference, Astronosis. As an age ends for humanity, let us find together a new age by experiencing that intersection of Gnosticism and the stars. Astronosis is a three-day event of presentations and panels from the best minds in ufology, Gnosticism, and alternative history as well as uh, experiential discussions and rituals. This is the one chance we can all have in finally hanging out together and uh, hanging out in very cool social events. Our astral speakers include Chris Knowles, Gordon White, Gigi Young, Lawrence Gallian, and others. Truly hope to see you there in the Cancun area at the end of March led us to our latest AB Live. Again, some tech archons here and there, as well as Amanda and me struggling with a sickness that just won't leave us. Regardless, never forget to write your own gospel and live your own myth. And never stop honoring those Gnostic heroes like Rosamonde that have left us for a while. Even as our grief stings, old worlds fall, and new ones appear and appear to pass us by, which isn't true. We are all at the crossing now. Actions create consequences which produce new worlds, and they're all different. And all these worlds, heretofore unknown to us, they must have always been there, must they not? You have to acknowledge the reality of the world that you're in. There is not some other world. Will you help me? I would urge you to see the truth of the situation you're in, Counselor. That is my advice. It is not for me to tell you what you should have done or not done. The world in which you seek to undo the mistakes that you made is different from the world where the mistakes were made you are now at the crossing and you want to choose, but there is no choosing there. It's only accepting. The choosing was done a long time ago. Are you there, Counselor? Yes. I don't mean to offend you, but reflective men often find themselves at a place removed from the realities of life. In any case, we should all prepare a place where we can accommodate all the tragedies that sooner or later will come to our lives. But this is an economy few people care to practice. And that is because when it comes to grief, the normal rules of exchange do not apply because grief transcends value. A man would give entire nations to lift grief off his heart, and yet... You cannot buy anything with grief because grief is worthless. Why are you telling me this? Because you continue to deny the reality of the world you're in. You said I was that man. 
at that crossing. Yes, at the understanding that life is not going to take you back. You are the world you have created. And when you cease to exist, this world that you have created will also cease to exist. But for those with the understanding that they're living the last days of the world, death acquires a different meaning. The extinction of all reality is a concept no resignation can encompass. And yet, in that despair, which is transcendent, you will find the ancient understanding that the Philosopher's Stone will always be found despised and buried in the mud. This may seem a small thing in the face of annihilation until annihilation occurs. All right, can you hear me now? Yeah. Oh, here we go. Yeah, yeah I was having a, yeah, blame, as I was saying, I'm blaming it on Mercury retrograde. Uh, it's one of those weeks, I'm not alone, even right before, right before the interview, uh, my contacts ripped and I'm like, I don't have time to find my other pair. So I grabbed these glasses, which I rarely use. But uh, the important thing is that we are here and we are somewhat alive for this uh, Special AB on the guitars and Mary Magdalene. Welcome everybody officially to uh, AB Live with or without the technical difficulties. We shall carry on. Good to see everybody in the chat. And uh, it's uh, great to have Amanda Radcliffe. Amanda, thank you. We finally got here and the Archons haven't, uh, they haven't striked yet. Not yet. And how are you doing? Yeah, I'm okay. As you know, recovering from the plague. But um, all right, other than that, and you? Oh, never a dull moment. Never a dull moment. And with us, too, and it's uh, overdue. It's been a long time. It's great to have uh, somebody whose work has informed me, my publisher, and that is Andrew Philip Smith. Andrew, thank you for coming back on the show. Hi, nice to be here again. And how have you been? Audio visual um, reincarnation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, times change. Times change. What are you going to do? So uh, I don't think video has killed the podcaster star, as the song goes. But you kind of you got to throw in video these days to uh, to get on it. And last but not least, we've got the Moon Dog Vance. Vance, how are you doing? Oh, I'm very excited to be here with Amanda and Andrew. And we're going to hear about the Gathars today, aren't we? And Mary Magdalene. Yeah, well, apparently there is a movement saying that they did not exist. So we're trying to, just as the movement saying that the Gnostics did not exist either. And uh, it's always fun to have this sort of back and forth banter. Obviously, I'm on the side that, uh, well, Gnosticism or the Gnostics is still a youth category in a word and I would say I would fall under the same uh, same rubrics when it comes to the Qatar so I would say that it is a useful a useful term so but uh, that's where we have some fun with these discussions and try to uh, move things forward and have people think and uh, decide to make up their own damn mind so 
also wanted to say this show will be dedicated to the memory of Bishop Rosamonde Miller. He left us uh, right before the new year, and I don't. It would be very hard to find somebody who really championed and represented the memory and the legacy, the archetypal image of Mary Magdalene. So uh, I know that her church and her family are doing uh, what they can to heal and keeping her alive through her memory, through remembrance. But uh, here on the Internet, uh, we also want to do that. I want to do that in this show. seems like the perfect occasion to do that. And we will talk more later on about... Uh, the great contributions of Rosa Monde, who is, uh, I know all of us and many thousands of people dearly missed her and appreciate what she has done to the world. So it seems like a, a good thing right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the reason we are here too is, uh, and then I'll throw it to Amanda. Amanda, um, do you mind if I share the dream? No. <laughs> all right. All right. Amanda had a dream and she messaged me about a week ago and in her dream we were going to Monsignor and uh, I, when I saw it, which I haven't, I said, oh, my heart is hurting and I don't know if I can do this right now. It's so overwhelming. And Amanda asked, is it physical or emotion? emotional? Mm-hmm. And I answered, it's the memories. I don't remember them in my head, but in my heart. And then I said, well, don't worry, hearts can be healed, but maybe let a doctor check to be sure it's nothing physical as well. And I answered, it's a great idea. I don't think it is, but I'm due for a health check. And then I said, uh, well, then let's hurry back and do the show, the show that we've had to interrupt for personal reasons. So this is a reason why we're here, and it's a dream. And it's a bit of a sink because uh, Vance and I just did an interview. We'll be out in a couple of weeks with Gary Lockman on his book about dreams and synchronicity. So, yes, a lot of woo-woo, a lot of fun woo-woo here. So, Amanda, tell us, uh, tell us about the, the dream or tell us about the idea that the Cathars didn't exist. Gosh, I don't really know where to begin on that subject. Um, the idea that the Cathars didn't exist just... I don't know. You know, Miguel, it makes me quite angry having been living in Monsegur and having met so many people who come to the mountain because they feel called um, and having had my own experiences there and memories and things like that. It, to me, is is just uh, preposterous. I mean, I'm not an academic. I haven't written a book like you, Andrew, you know, about the subject, but... I'm an experiencer and I've lived there and I've been on the mountain and I know what's there. And every year on March the 16th, we gather and we have the celebration on the mountain at the Camp de Cremat. And we read out the, the names of the people who died in Occitan. And people play music and they cry. And even now, 777 years later, this story is still creating um, so much emotion and so much yearning and so many memories for so many people that the concept that they never existed to me is, it's an anathema. 
It is. It is. It's strange. I understand academia has to do what it does and you have to speculate. You've got to write papers, dissertations. Mm -hmm. So you're going to let your mind go to different possibilities. Uh, Andrew, what do you think about the whole issue? I know we talked about it in our interview on your book on the Cathars. Um, yes, we did, didn't we? Um, because you, you interviewed Mark Gregory Pegg, who is one of the academics who's um, pushing for that. Hmm. Um, well, I kind of, um, you know, I, I suppose I find it slightly, I, I'm, I don't find it makes me angry necessarily. I, I find it a little bit puzzling and a little bit irritating as well, I have to, <laughs> I have to say. Um, but see, my approach to um, at, at least researching the stuff in my books, not necessarily, which isn't necessarily the same as my personal approach to spirituality, has always been to try and understand what academics are saying, why they're saying it, how they get there, and then to use the interesting bits um, for my writings you know um so uh, i i did actually read um a couple of uh, mark gregory pegg's books um right at the end when i was researching my book on the cathars and there was another one um the war on heresy i think it's called mm -hmm. by r.i moore that's right there uh, which which is a bit kind of um the argument was a bit more hmm, explicit and what I think they're trying to say is um, that they're looking at the evidence that we have and they're arguing that um, if you arrange it chronologically, because I also went through the um, talk by Justin Sledge, mm -hmm. which has kind of brought this to our attention again. Um, what you see is um, a few people who in the Languedoc who have slightly off-center views about Christianity and then uh, for political reasons, um, there's, there's a crusade against the uh, Languedoc from the north of France. And then you get the Inquisition. And because the Inquisition are asking all these leading questions about dualism, then uh, the people who are interviewed answer in the affirmative and they kind of make stuff up. And then that works its way back into the populace. So you actually do have a kind of dualist heresy as a result of the Inquisition. That, I think that's the general kind of narrative uh, that they're going for. Um, and um, Justin Sledge actually refers to a book called Cathars in Question, which came out a couple of years ago. And you can actually read parts of it. I managed to find that online, at least parts of it, on Google Books. So you can read through the introduction to other sections. And it's, it's actually um, more of a discussion but, um, than uh, a polemic against the idea of Catharism. And particularly the, the first few essays by various scholars uh, are quite hard on the, on the idea. There's one by uh, Mark Gregory Pegg, one by R.I. Moore. But the later ones actually look at the material and argue that there is evidence for uh, you know, a dualist heresy in the 12th century. And um, I was quite interested that um, I remember when Mark Gregory Pegg was on your program, he um, he was arguing that um, the account of, I have to look this up, the, um, 
the the chart of Nakrita, mm-hmm. um, uh, and and uh, uh, which survived only in a seventeenth-century account, or which was supposed to be made up from um, earlier, more or less contemporary accounts. Um, but that was, in fact, I can I can quote from this little book um, essay okay. at the end by Peter Biller. Um, it was that in, in 1167, the heretical church of Toulouse brought an Eastern heretic into the castrum of San Felice, and a great multitude of men and women of the church of Toulouse and of other neighboring churches gathered themselves there in order to read the con- receive the consolamentum. Um, so we, we only actually find that in the 17th, 17th century book, and Mark Gregory Pegg has argued that it's a forgery, and R.I. Moore has also argued that it's a forgery, in which case you you, you remove this idea that um, there was an organized Catholicism where people were meeting up and they had connections with uh, the Bogomils and that they received the consolamentum. Uh, and another essay actually points out that the rights like the consolamentum and uh, the, the melia romentum, is that right, uh, Amanda? Mm-hmm. The yeah. pronunciation. Um, the, the, somebody else was arguing, of course, those are so complex that uh, there's something you actually have to learn and be taught, yeah. which shows the existence of people who who, who were teaching them. And anyway, so in, in this final essay, um, Peter Biller um, actually writes that at, at a conference in Nice in 1999, held in order to debate the forgery of the charter that described the supposed council at San Felice, a team of experts in the words and forms of high medieval texts from the Institut de Recherche et d'Histoire des Textes uh, produced an unwelcome verdict. They pronounced the document genuine. And it said, although R.I. Moore, the author of The War on Heresy, was present at the conference, his book, The War on Heresy, does not mention this and simply declares there's no doubt it is a forgery. And um, Mark Gregory Pegg makes the same comments in his first essay in this book. Um, so there is plenty, apparently there is plenty of doubt that that is a forgery, and seems like the sort of linguistic experts consider it to be genuine, which really pokes a hole in the case that there weren't any Cathars in the 12th century. Yeah, well said indeed. Uh, uh, <clears throat> I think uh, so. But the argument, too, is more or less uh, like this, Andrew. I come up to you and I say, Andrew, you listen to too much punk rock. And you're like, no, Miguel, I, I like classic rock. I like yes and pink. But once in a while, I might listen to the second. And I'm like, no, you like punk rock. And I go to your house and I start smashing your CDs. And you actually said, fine, I do like punk rock and I'm going to absorb all your accusations and kind of hitch my wagons around them and become real punk rock. Is that kind of what the argument is? Is that they embraced dualism and they said, yes, we are rebel. Uh, Yes, somewhat, yeah. I mean, you're talking to somebody who who likes both punk and uh, some prog rock. So, <laughs> I can say you like disco. <laughs> something that would really get your hackles up. Well, Donald Summer was okay. <laughs> I'd like to interject something, if I may. Yeah, sure, of course. I'm curious about why they tried to insist that everything around this topic is a forgery, whether it's the 
the letters between Sonia and the other priests, whether it's the, uh, the, the scrolls that are in the Holy Blood and the Holy Grail, and this one also, to me, wherever there's an accusation of a forgery, there's something interesting to find. Why do they do it? Like in France, why do they continue to say, no, it's not real, the rose line isn't real, these things are forged, it's, it's not true, the cathars didn't exist, uh, the Priory of Zion doesn't exist, why do they continue to keep this going? What are they trying to hide? What do you think? Why, why would people deny that the Cathars existed? What is the, the point? Why would they say this document was a forgery? What do they have to gain by this? Well, I think probably with, with those two guys, it's purely an academic question. And, um, and when you saw how excited Justin Sledge was, the idea that the Cathars didn't exist, I think that, I mean, he's a, he's a very clever guy and he does really good Mm-hmm. Uh, podcasts on all kinds of esotericism, and he absorbs, you know, huge amounts of information. You even go back to the original text and everything. And, and so I, I think for him, he just got excited that he'd never heard of this uh, approach before. And he, I mean, he obviously hadn't read all of the, this book, Cathars uh, in Question, be, because the final essay actually attacks um, the view of uh, Mark Gregory Pegg and uh, R.I. Moore. Um, but one thing I did find interesting when, when they say that Catharism, you know, it wasn't a, a sort of a church, you know, like an established church that was opposed, opposing itself to the Catholic Church and everything. I, I, I don't have too much problem with that um, because um, one of the interesting things for me about the Cathars is the way that they organized themselves, that it wasn't, you know, incredibly hierarchical. Hierarchical, um, you know. Apparently, they did elect bishops at one point. Um, although that, um, and of course, that that's important in the later esoteric understanding of the of Cathars. Mm. Um, but um, it, their their hierarchy consisted just of really of the perfect and the uh, listeners or believers, um, mm. and the, because they had this chain of initiation. Um, but when a perfect um, initiated somebody through the consolamentum, uh, the, new, the new perfect was subject to the same restrictions as the perfect were. So uh, you couldn't have sex, you had to be celibate, um, you couldn't eat meat, and the, you know, there are various other restrictions. Um, and then that perfect being initiated could go and initiate somebody else, and you have this chain of initiation. Mm-hmm. But it, if the man or woman at the top broke his or her vows, that whole chain would be invalid. Yeah. And that put a lot of pressure on the perfect to keep to their vows. And that was, you know, part of what impressed the ordinary people of the Languedoc, uh, is that they actually did what they said they were going to do, whereas the uh, Catholic mm-hmm. Church at the time was very corrupt and, you know, had all these mm-hmm. uh, younger brothers of fairly well-to-do families who were clergy just because that was all there was for them to do, and they weren't at all interested in the spiritual dimension of it. So, so you had this kind of quite—I mean, it was—it was a hierarchy, but a hierarchy with lots of responsibility, personal responsibility. Um, and you know, and and, and also the confession that they had, um, you know, in the Catholic Church, um, 
it's the priest who hears the confession from the lay people. Whereas for the Cathars, it was the perfect who had to confess um, what they'd done wrong in front of everybody. And there are very few restrictions made on the believers uh, until they became perfect themselves. So it, that kind of um, structure that they had, uh, I think, wasn't at all wasn't very centralised. Uh, you can see later on it led to lots of uh, quite individualised beliefs that you see cropping up in the Inquisition records. So, so in that sense, I agree it wasn't like um, you know kind of monolithic church. It was quite quite a different structure to anything that you know like any Catholic or Protestant even church that we have today. No, that makes sense. And yeah, as I, as I was talking with Amanda last night, uh, if you read the work of Diana Pasolka, I know we think of her the UFOs, but she's a, she's a historian of the Catholic Church. And she says that around the 10th, 11th, 12th century, the Catholic Church was not very monolithic. People would go to mass here and there. You might get the sacraments. You Priests mm -hmm. could get married. You, you could follow the pagan spring tradition. So the church, the Catholic Church itself, was kind of more fluid, and then, then it decided to consolidate itself and sort of started, you know, getting rid of the pagans, the all the parts, Jews, all that that were sort of in this uh, this uh, franchise of churches out there. So it was pretty fluid back then. It said that um, just before the uh, Cathars were murdered in Montsegur about one week before they died, um, something happened on the mountain which was so powerful spiritually that all the dogs of war and the soldiers that were up there with the Cathar, Pefekdai and the believers, all converted mm. to Catharism. Um, even though they could have saved their own lives and they could have left, they stayed. So whatever they saw was so powerful, so impressing, Sorry, I'm speaking French in my mind here, impressional. Uh, so impressive um, that they 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 decided to stay and die with everybody else. But not only that, they converted one week before. Bearing in mind, Andrew, that this is all um, folk tradition that I've been immersed in, word of mouth stories that I've heard from people in Occitania. So I don't know whether this is written anywhere, but certainly what I've been told. Yeah, that, that's historical. I think. Yeah. I think that's historical about the everybody who was left in Montsegur converted, and, okay. and they, they were given the option of coming down uh, and uh, you know um, recanting the, their faith, uh, but they didn't. They, uh, yeah. they went to the fires instead, rather than do that. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah, I wanted to play a quick clip for you guys. And this is from my interview with uh, Mark Gregory Pegg. And then then maybe answer it or give me your views. It's only a couple of minutes, but he sort of summarizes the argument of why the Cathars didn't exist. So I'm just going to play it real quick. Hopefully there won't be any tech archons this time. Let's find out. Is that certainly in the 12th century, the great fear of the medieval church becomes heresy. Right? It's a great metaphor of like, it's a cancer, it's a leprosy eating away at the heart of Christendom. 
But you only find it as an accusation. It first begins as an accusation in the schoolroom, right? These, these, the great intellectuals of the 12th century throw it around at each other. I mean, part of the phenomenon here is in the 12th century is that the medieval church itself wants, if you for want a bit of word, wants heresies because that allows it to say it's the same church that goes all the way back to, say, Constantine the Great, you know, in the 4th century and so forth and so on. So, you know, therefore we have Manichaeans in the same way that Augustine of Hippo talked about Manichaeans, you know, in the 4th century or something. So there's a historical, deliberate historical connect, like creation of this continuity of the church that the 12th century church is doing, the medieval church is doing. And that's also when they start, they also start reading like Arrhenius of Leon. They, they sort of start seeing some Gnostic connections, but really they never talk about Gnosticism in that sense. Um, they talk about Manichaeans and Arians and so forth and so on. But what I, I only realize is that despite these powerful accusations, it's actually, it was the call for the crusade in 1208. And more people were, were, were the call for crusade appeal to more ordinary Christians, if you like, who decided when the council, when um, Innocent III, Pope Innocent III said basically that the council to lose his lands were full of, he said, mercenaries and heretics and they're polluting this land and it's going to eat away Christendom and he can't get rid of them. So I give you permission to go in and invade. It's like, he said, it's like going to Jerusalem. You have all the same rights as going to Jerusalem, like in the first crusade, second and third and fourth. Um, and more people go on crusade. Uh, the, the appeal, the idea that you can go on crusading within Latin Christendom was more appealing. And I would argue that within a few short years, because of the great violence of the early years of the crusade, and it goes for like 20 years, uh, 21 years, it ends in 1229. Um, and then with the rise of Inquisition, that's when we start saying, if you like, these categories of who these heretics were. Now, the question you're asking, who are these people accused of heresy? Right. Yes, there is something distinctly different about the world that, let's just call it, between the Garonne and Rhone rivers or the lands of the Count of Toulouse, the papacy called the Provincia, which is better translated as just province, like they thought it was like the oldest Roman province. Um, these, yes, there were the good men and women is often the name, but there was, there wasn't, let's get this straight, there was no heresy of the good men and women in the 12th century. This is an easy mistake that people are confused about, say, my work and say the work of the great scholar like R.I. Moore, is that there really, I would actually argue there were no heretics in the 12th century. There were accusations of heresy, and that's not the same thing. Um, and none of these people thought of themselves as heretics. They weren't marginal people. They weren't um, on the edge of society. They weren't secretive. There was no, they were like integral, ordinary Christians. I would even argue, thinking themselves as quite orthodox, integrated within the society, very much assuming their day-to-day -day activities, that holiness was something they could achieve in their day-to-day -day activities. And so what you end up having is, but at the same time, there's an incredible intellectual edifice being created by Latin Christian intellectuals, right? Church intellectuals that basically is saying, no, only the church gets to decide what holiness means. Only the church decides the relationship of heaven and earth. Only the church decides, you know, the relationship of the human and the divine. And remember, this is also the same period when they're starting to create that whole notion that um, what, you know, what humans share with Christ is, is his humanity and he shares... We, he shares our humanity, and through that we share his divinity. So there's this idea that the Imitatio Christi, that any any ordinary person can actually be divine through just daily activity. It builds up, I would say, for two or three centuries. But I'd even argue these good men sort of believe that. I mean, that even comes out, you could argue, out of things like the First Crusade, with the idea that walking where Christ walked, you're actually being like Christ by going to the Holy Land. But now we're talking about the whole idea that you don't even have to go to Jerusalem to be like Christ because you, we share this bond 
which famously the same Pope, Innocent III, it's the first canon of the great, I think perhaps the most important church council in the history of Christianity, the Fourth Lateran Council of 1215. The first canon says that, that, you know, that he shares our humanity and we share his divinity and therefore we're, we're tied, to, we're bonded together. Um, but that also, you know, that leads, but this is quite, these are quite powerful and sophisticated ideas like the creation of purgatory as a concept in the late 12th century. And I think a lot of ordinary Christians don't, um, aren't going that way. So heresy very much is a powerful tool of the church, if you like, to create this idea of what it means to be Christian. Um, and so that all ordinary Christians end, you know, so it's like creating this model of what it is to be Christian, that basically, for want of a better word, that somebody could recognize what it is to be Christian, whether you're in London or Rome or, you know, Venice or Toulouse. And I would actually argue that's not clear, certainly at the beginning of the High Middle Ages, say around 1100, and it's not really clear in 1200. It is by say 1400, but I think it takes 200 years of inquisition and church doctrine and so forth and so on. Um, so that's why I think heresy is a powerful tool that the church uses. Um, and then of course, we get, then it becomes this powerful tool of persecution with holy war and then the inquisitions. But yeah, I mean, just basically, I would just say these people living in this world um, completely had an understanding of holiness, that ordinary people could be holy, that it was possible for, it was imitable. So it actually was a little bit like Imitatio Christi. They picked up those ideas. So it's not like some old pagan idea in these little villages. And these were the good men. Um, but people went to priests too. People assume you could go to a priest, you'd go to these good men. It's sort of, an, if you like, it's an understanding of, I want, let's just say it's an understanding of religiosity that is powerfully tied to the social structure of these little villages and communities. And that's clearly antithetical to the notion of what religion's being created by the church in the 12th century, which is holiness and religion, for one of word, a category of religions being created that belongs to the church. That's who defines it. And so I do think there's this, in, there's this powerful tension that's there in the 12th century. Um, and then it's, it's completely obviously reshaped by persecution in the 13th century. And what's even more fascinating, you actually see people consciously choosing to be heretics, I'd argue, after 1250. People knowing full well that they're holding beliefs and doing things they may be killed for or persecuted for. So I do think there is a, there is a moment where people consciously choose to be heretics, but that's only after. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. 
uh, you know, 21 years of holy war, and then at least, I'd say, a decade or more, two decades of inquisition. So I'm not far from, I'm not at all denying that some people do consciously choose and think of themselves as heretics, but only after, say, 1250. Well, <clears throat> there you have it. What do you think, Amanda? Are there normal, holy Catholics, except uh, the idea of thinking Satan rules the world, the Old Testament is invalid, uh, the structure like the Manichaeans, all that. I don't think that was really a full Catholic idea. It sounds more Gnostic, don't you think? <laughs> I'm going to pass this over to Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> Unless they trumped up those charges, right? If they said, we're going to use the classic Gnostic heresy and put it on these neighborhood Catholics in little towns. And there's so many things in, in that in that clip that I disagree with. I don't even really know where to begin. Um, ooh. Yeah, I really, I really don't know where to begin. What do you think, Andrew? Well, um, you know, I, I would think that that might be partly true of the Christianity of the time in general, what he was describing. Um, but see, he's got rid of this Council of 1167 where they have contact with the Bogomils because um, he, he says it's a forgery, so he doesn't have to address that. If you think that um, that did happen, um, then uh, you have Catharism in the, <laughs> before the Albigensian Arbit Crusade. Yeah, that's we got a bit of a smoking gun right there. So, but I found that quite in interesting with the Inquisition records because um, when I was researching my book, part of my method was to go through everything I could find that was published in English. And unfortunately, the um, Inquisition records have been, you know, they were, I think they're mostly in Latin, um, but they've been published in French in several volumes. Um, anyway, so, so I was going through every book that I could find and just extracting whatever I could. And my method, which it wasn't a very scholarly one, was just to look for whatever weird stuff I could find. <laughs> and there was some really weird stuff there, which wasn't even much like... Uh, our idea of the Cathars, there are all sorts of kind of local myths and folklore that they had, um, uh, and folk magic as well. Um, there's a description mm -hmm. of the various items that kept in, woman kept in her purse, uh, and a, a gem that was used for divination and was in the steps. But that's yeah. re really fascinating. And, and I think it, you know, um, it probably wasn't all that organized, Catharism. And, and that, that's another point that I might agree with, that they, they didn't call themselves Cathars. Um, they, they were, some people did call them Cathars. Um, a lot, lot of people called them heretics. A lot of people called them Manichaeans. They called them dualists. Um, mm -hmm. But locally, they were known as the, the good men and the good women or the good Christians. And they often called themselves that. So I, I agree with that. But on the other hand, um, uh, I think it's... Uh, a reasonable way for us to refer to them as Cathars. It's my favorite term. <laughs> yeah, there's uh, one thing I wanted to mention, which you found, which is, a, uh, again, we're speculating, but it's one of those hmm, well, <clears throat> ideas. But you talk about how, I forgot which one is it, the, the book of the two powers, where Adam is created and he sort of lays there as a worm, and Satan has to use, I think, an angel to animate him. 
And you only find that in the Sethian cosmology or mythology, right? The idea of Adam as a worm and he has to, Sophia has to animate him. So that's a very curious uh, fact, don't you think, Andrew? Yes, it is. It's very suggestive of some kind of link with the ancient Gnostics. And, 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 and that whole structure, I mean, it does look very much like a kind of medieval Christian version of what the ancient Gnostics believe you know we, we, we don't know how how it emerged do you have any idea how uh, how catharism might have emerged Amanda? gosh um even if it's just mythical you know and then what's yeah. your take on it uh, yeah now i i've got brain fog today because i'm not well as you know but um yeah. i was trying to remember the first time the word cathar was used in my research and it was in um, North Africa. I can't remember exactly where. Um, and it was because they were trying to, Carthage, I think. And I think they were trying to, um, the Christians at that time were being told by the Romans to go and make sacrifices to the Roman gods. And at that time, the bishop, whose name I can't remember right now, um, decided that if any Christian priests did that, they'd have to go back to the beginning. They would immediately not no longer be considered worthy of giving the sacraments. And that was where the first use of the name Pure One came from, according to my research. Um, and that was because these, you know, the, the Romans were forcing them to do this or they would die. You know, if they didn't make sacrifices in the square, they would die. So those that did were considered impure and no longer able to give the sacraments. And that reminds me of what you said, Andrew, about the Cathars, you know, the higher up you go, you have to live what you speak, you can't just say it. Like we know now all the trouble in the Catholic Church of people not doing what they, they preach. And obviously that was a problem even then. So this idea of purity, I think is something really important and living like Christ, um, I do agree with what he said in that clip about, you know, the Cathars believed that you could be like, like Christ and they lived and tried to aspire to that. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of, I have no idea exactly. All I know is that I think it merged. I think the stream came from the places that we've spoken about, the Bogomils and the Manichaeans, but it merged with the folk traditions of Occitania at that time. Um, certainly, I think it was a, a cross-pollination, it was a fertilization of a spiritual um, frequency of different currents, different streams mingling in a special place, is how I see it. And I think it was fed by the power of the region itself and how it was a place where people could be free, at least for a while. So maybe it was true that in the beginning they didn't believe they were heretics and they were not called heretics. Maybe there was still this this spiritual freedom that Occitania came to stand for, you know, at that time. Yeah, that's just my theory. <laughs> it could be not true. You know, I'm an experientialist. I have to go with what I experience and and what people tell me. The people that I meet who still carry these traditions in their blood, you know, in their family histories, in their in their DNA. So I listen. And then I, I listen to the land as well and, and what I see in the place. And 
So I, I really don't know from an academic point of view. I can only say from my own perspective. What do you think? Well, I think mm, none of us know. Um, I kind of, I mean, the, the Bogmill connection is an obvious one. Mm. Maybe proceed. I, I mean, the story behind that was that um, they had to uh, receive the consolamentum again and be reinitiated because something, something had gone wrong, hadn't they? I think mm -hmm. that's why they, they needed the, the Bogmills to come up, which would mean that it preceded that. Uh, I, I kind of like this idea that. Um, uh, that Manichaeism had, gone, had survived and gone underground, maybe yeah. just through families, and then that had seeded it. Yeah. Um, and um, that's a funny. Uh, <laughs> well, that's three times. Miguel, sorry to interrupt you, Andrew. But three yeah. times the green language has been mentioned to me in the last 24 hours. Get out of here. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what is the green language? I only actually found out last night it was the secret language of the troubadours oh. in the cult of love, in which they were unable to outright tell the secrets of esoteric uh, symbolism and also their own personal opinions about the people in the courts. So the green language is something they developed. Do you, is that true, Andrew? Do you know? Um, I, I haven't looked into the troubadours. Seriously, I, I've got a great big row of books on them that I've been picking up <laughs> to, to what they do, and I love some of the material. Um, um, yeah, but I hadn't heard of the green language uh, before. Oh, well, very uh, cool. Sounds, sounds great. Distinct, it reminds yeah. me of the, um, when the alchemists have the language of the birds. Yeah. I randomly hit a, a comment and it came up. Okay. That's <laughs> weird. Cool. <laughs> I thought it we were being hacked or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised the way things are going. I've had. Uh, yeah. As long as somebody yeah. doesn't ruin us. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I've had tech archons all week. So, and then, yeah, and Amanda, thank you. You're doing great. Yeah. As we were talking, Andrew and I suffered the V word during Christmas. And now uh, I don't know what Vance is doing. Vance, mm -hmm. are you a robot? No, I'm oh, just hiding out my house. Arigato, Mr. Robot. When you imagine when you're talking about um, Occitania and the, and the Languedoc, um, but one of the, the when I wrote the book, I had a few questions that I, I had for myself that I wanted to answer or research, and one of them was about the Italian Cathars because you know when you read the popular books about the Cathars, it's all about the Cathars of the Languedoc. And yeah. it's hardly anything about the Italian Cathars. So, and, I, and I'm, I have a bit of a sort of completist nature. So, if I hear that there were Italian Cathars as well, you know, or there are Gospels that are outside of the New Testament, or, you know, <laughs> there are little fragments of law that have been lost, and we can, you know, they're in the footnotes of academic books or something like that. That, that, you know, that makes me want to research them. So I looked into the Italian Cathars, and I was thinking of writing a whole chapter about them. Um, but I found out, and I did write a little about them, but the thing is, they just weren't as interesting as the uh, Cathars of the Languedoc. I mean, yeah. they did a lot of arguing amongst themselves about which kind of dualism was the right kind of dualism, and there were all these kind of splits. And then I, I forget the name of the castle, but, but they ended up under siege in northern Italy uh, oh. in a similar kind of situation to uh, Montsegur, and they surrendered. 
So there, there was no dramatic story. It was just like a damp squib at the end. And Do you know what year that was, Andrew? Um, no, I, I really don't have the dates. Of, <laughs> yeah, was it after, after 1244, would you say? It might, it might have been. Um, I can have a look hmm. at um, talk amongst yourselves. For, uh, Sorry, I don't want to put you on the spot. <laughs> I was just curious um, if it was um, after or not. It, well, it was. I think it was before the... Um, because the, the OTA revival, but they went, I think they went off to Italy to get um, yeah. the Solomon. So, mm-hmm. um, obviously, Ballybast went to Spain in, in the 1300s. Um, yeah. So, oh, I, yeah, I so um, 1276 was the fall of uh, Sermione, the last oh. Kappa fortress in Italy. Thank you. But, uh, Didn't know that. Twelve seventy-six. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> and uh, and I do have a, I do cover it a little bit in my in my book, but um, it, it, it of course it doesn't have this great romantic appeal. No. Um, Italians arguing with each other. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and the, the the other thing I liked as well was um, when I looked into um, the Kappa revival, I I um, I did. Again, I wrote this book of, uh, a few years ago, and my head's full of other stuff at the moment. Um, but um, the um, there were local people who took part in the revival um, in the Langdok. Um, mm. you, you probably have the, their names to hand. Yeah. You mean people like Dea da Roche, Rene Nelly? Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. Who else? Uh, of course, um, Oh, my mind today is terrible. My memory, yeah. Um, but yeah, those those local those people, people, absolutely, yeah. yeah, they were crucial in the revival. Absolutely crucial. Without them, we wouldn't be here today. We wouldn't know what we know. And um, they were proliferating this idea of the the um, prophecy of Ballybast. You know that after seven hundred years, the laurel will turn green again. Good men and women shall return. It was them. It was it was Deirdre Roche especially who was. Um, I think he was a librarian in Arc, not far from Monsegur, and he took it upon himself to create this whole um, study of, of the Cathar faith, as I'm sure you know. And he published a lot of pamphlets, a lot of educational material, and um, created a study center from his home in Arc and took people up the mountain. And he was very well connected. Um, we found out he was actually a member, he was a Freemason, and he was a member of several secret societies too, um, all of whom were very interested in the Cathar mythology and in in bringing it back. Yeah. There were, yeah, quite, a few women. There were quite a few women involved in the story too, um, but Countess Anita, I can't remember her surname right now, but um, there was a countess who was funding a lot of this too. There have been several countesses involved who all believe that their bloodline goes right back to the Cathars. Um, I was told when I was um, up the mountain one year that um, for 200 years, Monsegur was deserted after the burnings. No one would go there. And every year the Pope was cursing it also. The Monsignor was anathematized as being the head of the serpent. 
And um, every year, up until I think it was in the 1960s, the mountain was being cursed. So for 200 years, nobody lived on Monsegur, and it, it kind of started up again. And nobody really fully understands why. Likewise, when it comes down to this, this Cathar revival, again, nobody really understands why, but I believe it was kept alive, like you say, in families. Families in the Languedoc spoke to me and told me all of these things. So secretly, these, these traditions, these beliefs, these practices even have been kept alive, but only recently has it been kind of feasible and safe for people to talk about them. By recently, I mean, you know, since the since the 18th 19th century and amanda have you been able to go to those initiation caves there yes have, yeah yeah would you like to go uh yes i would but I, I mean historically i'm a little skeptical of, of some of the links but um yes i yes i would you and Tessa went, well, you went to the Cathar country, didn't you? Yes, yes, we did a few years ago, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And I went, I went at uh, months ago. You did? How yes. did you feel? Oh, yes, it was quite moving, um, especially coming down, actually, when uh, yeah. I was sort of aware of, you know, thinking of all the, the perfect walking down to go to their deaths and the fires. Mm. Mm. Well, one thing to say about the caves, first time I went to Monsegur, I could feel in my body that it was hollow inside. And I said to my friends, you know, this, this, this park is hollow. It, it has caves. And they didn't really know, you know, they just thought I was being weird as usual. So I went and spoke to the village archaeologist a few, maybe a year later. And he said, oh, yeah, there are so many caves in there. It's like a Swiss cheese. It would take a lifetime to explore them all. And it's believed um, that many of the Cathars escaped through the cave system. So I do believe, and also it said um, that they lived in for Castrum. Um, several of the people who are named in some of the records lived beneath the, the park, beneath the castle. Um, and I believe that there are different entrances to Monsegur than the one we currently know. I think there is a cave system coming from the left of the mountain, but we haven't found it yet. Um, we're going to try and do that, and so I think that I think that the idea of the caves is true. Are you aware of the skeletons that were found inside a shaft inside the mountain? Oh, tell me. There were two skeletons, a man and a woman, and uh, we had the skeletons examined by forensic nurses. Um, in the museum in Montsegur, it says that the, that the skeleton was a woman of maybe 40 years old and a man of maybe 20, but we had them analysed and the skeleton is the right age to have been Esclamond de Foix. And they were found, we believe it's Esclamond and Guillaume, and they were found inside a shaft and they'd been buried deliberately down this shaft and they'd been laid out in a certain way. And her head was completely laid on a kind of cushion of um, stones and surrounded so that nothing could fall upon her head. But the whole bodies were preserved. And unfortunately, I won't talk about how they died because it's very gruesome, but they were they were buried deliberately inside a cave system. And you can see them in the in the museum. I didn't know who they were, but the first time I saw them, I, I fell on the ground like they like I was in the presence of a saint. That's what I felt. Mm. 
And um, and sure enough, if it is Esclamon, then that would be who she is in there. Amazing. So I believe, in other words, long story short, I think there is something to the cave story. I do believe that. I do believe that they were initiated into the caves, if only to be able to get in and out of, of places um, unseen, like the Templars. But I believe there's more to it than that. Mm. Awesome. And oh, go ahead, Andrew. Sorry. <laughs> oh, go ahead, go ahead. Um, are they accessible at the moment? Because a few years yeah. ago, I went along to a meeting of the um, Lectorian Roscrucianum in Devon. Yeah. Um, because they were the Dutch group who were, who were that, but they basically had a kind of Butlin's holiday camp. Yes. Uh, at the in there. Um, they're not, the well, they're not, they're a little bit frowned upon by the locals. Yeah. That, yeah. So um, you went along? I went along that they had an introductory meeting. I think I went to a couple of them. Um, and I, I did ask about the caves, and I was told that at the, at the moment they were inaccessible because of health yeah. and safety reasons. Uh, mm -hmm. but, uh, it and it, it was quite interesting. I, 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 sorry, sorry I, I'll just finish that little story. Um, I, di I didn't tell them that I'd written a book about the cathars. <laughs> so uh, I didn't, you know, so I, I just kind of nodded at and the stuff that they said and everything. Um, but I, I did find, I don't know if you met them, I found them a bit timid as an esoteric group, but they were terribly scared of any visualization practices. But they, they said, we, we don't do visualization, visualization practices because they're, I can't remember, Luciferan or something like that. Um, and there was a guy, that, he described this very simple sort of grounding visualization that he did. I said, no, no, you can't do that. <laughs> you don't know what might happen, you know. But, uh, but go on, Amanda. Uh, <laughs> well, they'd be horrified at some of the things that go on in Montsegur, then, in that case. Yeah, really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I haven't heard of this before. No, it's the first time I've heard of it. I wanted to ask you, Andrew, if you'd read um, Otto Rahn's experiences in the caves. Um, yes, I, I read Otto Rand. I can't remember what he said about the caves. Oh, just hit, read it again. It's quite interesting. Anyone out there who wants to read it, he, he almost died. He got flooded um, and was oh, saved yeah. by his assistant. Um, yeah, but I, I definitely think that there was something in the caves, and the caves were walled up as well. Do you know that, that some Cathars, or at least believers, died because the uh, the people trying to kill them, walled them up while they were hiding inside the caves. Mm. That's a pretty awful way to go. Ooh, yeah. And uh, it must be something out there because somebody in the chat was mentioning Freddie Silva, and it is true. The the Knights Templar Castle in Tomar, Portugal, which I've been to, mm -hmm. the, the Portuguese government just decided that nobody can go down to the catacombs. So he's been fighting to go underneath and do and explore. So yeah, wow. they keep, they keep, uh, for lack of better words, cock blocking us mystics. If you know what I mean, we can't, we can't go places. <laughs> why are they hiding these things is the question. Yeah. But I mean, you would think there's, why is the Portuguese government and it's all, you know, bureaucracy and paperwork. And then there was, why is the, why is the French government? So there's always, they're always trying to hide these things. Obviously, why? 
And Amanda, you also said that the tell the audience too about the yellow crosses and the cathars. I think that's a, a perennial right. message that uh, nobody needs to forget or should know about. Sorry. Yeah, well, I was simply speaking about the situation at the moment with the division that we are all encountering and how it's like the same story repeating itself again. Um, the yellow crosses were just given by the Inquisition, I can't remember the year, can you remember, Andrew, um, to mark a person as a heretic? And so it began there, and then later, of course, it was used on the Jews. Um, the same kind of thing. Of course, you've had it in other traditions and other cultures too, like when they tattoo criminals or brand slaves, um, but the yellow cross was a particular thing for pointing out that someone was a heretic. They were made to wear it on their sleeves, I believe. Is that right, Andrew? I think so. Yes, I think so. Yes. Yeah. The scarlet letter here in the colonial in colonial times. <laughs> yeah. And, and then they were often shunned by other people in the village. Yeah. Um, because, you know, the Inquisition did work by this um, method of guilt by association. Mm. And they, they followed up all their leads. And so if you were known to have been seen talking to a perfect... And then, you know, you get interrogated and then say, oh, yes, but uh, Guillaume was there too. And then he gets interrogated. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, they're very um, sophisticated bureaucratic methods that they were using that were the inspiration for later uh, oppressive uh, bureaucratic regimes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, same as it ever was. Andrew, do you still have time? I said, do, are you pressed for time? Yeah, sure, yeah. Still yeah. Going? You, you okay, Amanda? Feeling good? I'm okay. Still, okay, good, I'm good. Still alive. No, I, I'm not sane yet, so I'm still insane. So, But, uh, yeah, Vance, any question? Probably take one question or so. Oh, boy, what a uh, – well – they can leave Nate, super chats if they if they have a, if they need to ask. <laughs> well, Nate did, so I got to ask his, but he's got two of them. So I'm going to ask about the uh, um, the Cathar dove and how it's actually a type of certain other symbol like a cross or fleur de lis. Can uh, either of you speak about that? The fleur de lis and its associations with other creatures, things. Shall I take a shot, Andrew? <laughs> All I know about the Cathar dove is that it symbolizes um, the Lady Esclamond, who I was just speaking about. And when she died, it was said that she never actually died physically, but she transfigured and turned into a dove and flew to Mount Tabor, which is opposite Montsegur. And she rests there eternally. And so that's what the Cathar dove symbolizes to us today, at least. Uh, regarding the fleur de lis, I don't know personally about that. If there's any correlation, do you know, Andrew? I, I, I don't know. Um, I, I think it's in the nature of symbols that they're very fluid, and I, I can see why you'd think of the fleur de lis when you saw the uh, the cathode. Mm. Um, but there's this guy whose name is escaping me who wrote a whole book about uh, medieval watermarks, medieval and uh, Oh, yeah. Renaissance watermarks. Um, but I have to say, I didn't find on a historical level at all convincing. I do address it a bit in my, my book. But it's kind of fascinating. He, he saw the, 
these watermarks as a continuation of the uh, Cathar faith. Yeah. And so he, um, you know, there are all sorts of uh, wonderful symbols that were literally watermarks just made uh, uh, in, during the process of um, paper making. Um, but it, it is a fascinating book, but um, I think that's very much in the nature of symbols. Mm. And if you want, particularly with something like that, the, the sort of historical approach can illuminate stuff so you can see, okay, this symbol was used in heraldry for this meaning. Mm -hmm. But I, I think that, that they are by their nature fluid. So if you're mm -hmm. moving away from that, that sort of historical, if you're pulling at the historical, historical anchor and letting your boat sail off where the tide will take you, symbols are really good, a good way of having this associative, mythical and understanding of things. Good question. Anything else there, Rent? <clears throat> well, let's see. Uh, um, very quickly, Amanda, uh, did you and your group feel the impact of the Aeon Bite ceremony that they performed on the 21st and the 24th for no, the Thank you for that. I know who this is, and yes, we did. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Very good. So what and was the uh, the ritual? Oh. It's a secret. Sorry. It's a secret to me too. Only for patrons. Yeah, we will, we'll have to give you a yellow cross if we tell you, Andrew, on your head. <laughs> now, did the Cathars invent cheese and is an aid to travel to the spiritual realm uh, to aid astral projection and so forth? Somebody wants to know? Is that and it sounds wacky to me, but I have to put the question out the way it was asked. Indigestion does give me an out of body experience. That's I can say that. That's as far as I can go. <laughs> okay. Cheese, you know, cheese. Uh, cheese. Uh, yeah. Did they invent cheese? I, no. No, I don't think they invented cheese. And um, they probably, if they could eat cheese, they probably, I mean, the French love cheese. Yes. And they're all sort of kinds of wonderful cheeses. So um, uh, if they could eat cheese, they would. Like <laughs> it, does, from the yeah. it does create <laughs> dreams, yeah. <laughs> Here's another one. I'm not sure if it's serious or not. What is the significance of A E I O U in Cathar songs? I, we may have lost Amanda. Oh, no. Here we go. Okay. Is there something to that? The A E I O U? Yeah. yeah. Does it occur in, um, Do in the songs? Oh, uh, yeah, there's a particular mm -hmm. song, um, La Boyer. Do you know it? No. no. Yeah. Do we have um, a te technical issue here, I think? I think so. I think your bandwidth is a little low right right the second. I, I can hear you, but you're not, you're not moving. Okay. Uh, but you don't have to move. You can just speak, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's a mystery. Everyone is frozen. So I'm just frozen for everyone else. And they frozen for me. Um, the A-E-I-O-U um, story, I think, is coming from old Gnostic texts. Um, I have a, 
a book about the Coptic wow. uh, magical traditions, and that's used a lot in magical rituals in that text. Yeah, the three stellas of Steth, and you get these vowels going, hey, yeah, I think, uh, and they've written on vowels how it can alter your state of mind. Yeah, exactly. All that good stuff, yeah. Yeah, the angelic language mm -hmm. consists of solely vowels, right? Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. Oh, we've all started moving again now. Oh, good. <laughs> Let's change. Um, yeah, yeah, I, I didn't realize. Um, seem to be a techno -y. I'm surprised we've gotten this long. I'm grateful we've yeah. gotten this far. <laughs> uh, so I didn't realize that the vowels occurred in um, song from the Langtha. Um, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, uh, they are very Gnostic and even pre-Gnostic because I think they come from Egypt mm -hmm. originally. Um, but in the yeah. Gnostic writings, you get the um, well, the seven Greek vowels because you had. Omicron now a very famous letter, <laughs> and and uh, <laughs> Omega a separate letters so separate but long and short O's and the vowels and the same with uh, uh, Eta and Epsilon. So you have seven vowels in Greek. Um, so uh, there's a really good book by just short book by Justin Godwin about the uh, the seven vowels, and he. Um, I've lost Amanda, I think. Uh, Maybe she's just on sound. Go ahead. Also, as, as well as being a historian of esotericism, uh, Justin Godwin is a, a musicologist. So he um, he has exercises on chanting the vowels and he's tried all this kind of stuff. And he it's a really good book uh, going through the centuries. Um, um, but it's still it's um, I, I've used it as a modern magical practice because the um, Chaos Magic uh, Gnostic Pentagram ritual that uses the vowels, um, starting with points on your uh, on your body. So um, uh, let's go. Uh, um, I, I'm not going to do the whole thing. So it'll take a few minutes of <laughs> intense vowel chanting, but that, that, that's inspired by the uh, by the Gnostic um, <laughs> vowel chants. Uh, so that, that some, that's a version of it that's available as a kind of living tradition for uh, people now. Do your vows. And you've taught <laughs> yourself coin Greek. Is, wasn't that one of your projects in the last couple of years, Andrew? Um, yeah, well, I, I, I did some Greek several years ago with somebody. And then I did a, a year uh, night classes at Trinity College in Dublin and um, but then I picked it up during lockdown again, mm -hmm. and then I did um, finalysis course on um, the Greek magical papyri uh, linguistic approach, where we um, we look at the uh, original texts, uh, which is very helpful. No. And the, the Greek magical papyri they're, they're from around the same time as the ancient Gnostic writings, firstly sort of centuries. Preserved in Egypt, um, but those are written in Greek. But there are also Coptic, slightly later Coptic spells, which got a bit Christianized, and somewhat earlier Demotic Egyptian spells. Um, so, um, so yeah, I've been uh, doing some Greek uh, again.
And there you have it, my beloved True Seekers. Amanda and Andrew are simply amazing, and I continue to learn so much from them. The second part does not disappoint, and we do get into a, an honoring of Rosamonde Miller. And as mentioned in the intro, this show is indeed dedicated to her memory. Thus, and as a bonus for subscribers, I'll include my own interview with Rosamonde. Expect a lot on Mary M. and a lot on some very cool secret Gnostic legacies. Including the audio version, this is a cool listen if you leverage the private RSS feed from AB Prime or Patreon that works in the podcast provider of your choice. And yes, you can now get a simple private RSS feed through Red Circle for only $4.99 a month. Check it out in the show notes. And don't forget about the Astronosis Conference in March. So please become an AB Prime member or Patreon at Patreon or Red Circle subscriber for the full audio interview and to support this Red Bill Gavideria. It will cost you less than a buck per episode, and that's a deal of many lifetimes. The alternative spirituality and philosophy of the Gnostics is more important than ever. Might be the only way to finally stop the censoring, marginalization, and bad retconning of all that was magical and wondrous in the past. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being yourself, your true self here in the desert of the real. Hello and goodbye, as always. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.